6, we're in the summary of this particular uh, verse, and once again we're putting together the pieces of the puzzle, trying to understand and clarify what all's going on, what what is being said, and so we um, uh, indeed need to go in front of the throne of grace. We're told that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and show us things to come. And so that talks about the future. I mean, that's what the Lord does. He sees the beginning from the end. He reveals parts of it to us. This is not a total exhaustive revelation. The world wouldn't contain all the books. But what this is, is very uh, gives us some very clear statements and things that he wants us to consider and factor in to our thinking. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer. And let's be sure that we're ready to look into God's Word. Let's pray. Father, again, we're amazed and honored that you consider us to be a part of your family. And we know that we're in there not by anything we've done, but by what our Lord did in our place on a cross. And by simple faith in Him, we have eternal life. So, Father, I pray that as we look into Your Word, we would have a proper understanding of it. But, Father, I pray we'd also have a proper application of it. Because it is so very important to everyone uh, who's ever lived on this earth, but especially to those alive today. So let us carry this message of good news out, and let us be encouraged today to do that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in Matthew 25:46. <laughs> Excuse me. We're actually at point eight uh, in the summary, and uh, we saw last week. It says there will these will go away into eternal punishment. This word is Colossus. It's done. It's well known outside of the Bible. Known by Aristotle, it was used to refer to that which is disciplinary. Uh, Josephus uses this frequently, including a reference to Cain, what type of punishment Cain underwent. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And it's a punishment that includes fear, a healthy fear of not wanting to be a part of it. It says, but the righteous into eternal life. Now notice it says righteous into eternal life. Because there's a lot of people who have not really lived a righteous life, but they're imputed the righteousness of God, and that's what it's about. So he will take all of us imperfect sheep, because I still don't know any perfect sheep except Jesus, and he was the shepherd. And the rest of us are imperfect sheep, and it says that he's going, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So he will make us perfect one of these days. We'll have his righteousness imputed. He said the righteous into eternal life. The sheep and the goats. So the goats are headed for the lake of fire. That's what he's saying. Remember that the eternal fire has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 2541 back a few verses ago. So there's something that happened between God and Satan before man came into being. Because when he showed up in the Garden of Eden, he was already fallen. He didn't get there and fall. He was already a fallen creature. And he led Adam and Eve astray. So we have to factor all that in. Now he has been judged. We've looked at the passages on that. There was a sentence declared. That sentence was the lake of fire. And he's not there yet. 
So it tells us that somewhere along the line, man has something to do in the resolution of this conflict between God and Satan. And so we have an important role in that, whether we realize it or not. It is the unseen war. Barnhouse wrote about it in the Invisible War. Other people have written about it too. So it's not like it's a, it's a unique subject or off limits. The demons know their final judgment's already settled. Okay, so there's something that was done, a judgment that was made, prepared for the, the, for the uh, devil and his angels, the lake of fire. And here is a, uh, the, here's the demon-possessed guy coming out to meet the Lord. And they said, what business do we have with each other, son of God? They knew who Jesus was. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They also knew it was not the time yet before their uh, final judgment of being cast into the lake of fire. Now those who don't repent and accept the payment for their sins from the king will share the punishment with Satan and his angels. That's, that's what this verse is about. And that's what the context of this passage is about. The sheep will exist in the presence of God for eternity. Because that's, that's what heaven is. We'll be there in the presence of God. I think sometimes people think about heaven as, hey, we can go drive our Lamborghinis around on racetracks at 400 miles an hour. And we, we can do all these kind of crazy things and all that. Heaven is about being in the presence of God. Okay? What is that going to entail? I don't find a lot of revelation on that yet. But you know what? He's got eternity to reveal himself to us. So whatever it is, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. So uh, at the heart of the angelic conflict, the issue of eternity. Right at the heart of it, as we're told here. So the valid fear of the Lord should be replaced with his love and will be as one spiritually matures. It says there's no fear in love. Perfect love. Love that's grown up, love that's mature, love that's real. Cast out fear. Because fear involves punishment. Colossus. That's our other use of that word in the New Testament. But the one who fears is not perfected in love. We're told in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it's a good place to start. That's where we start. But as a believer trying to grow up, Thomas had a little thing with him today he wanted to show me about a person getting saved and then growing. He's growing. And that is so... That's what we're supposed to do. With the vine and the branches, we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to produce fruit. And how will you know when you're when you're when you get grown? Well, uh, this little thing over here, this little chart we've been looking at on Wednesday nights, and you look there, right there at the at the next to the end, it says you're transformed. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so you can determine what is good and righteous and perfect. That's what we're called to do. And how will you know that you've been transformed? Because you'll have a love for God and a love for other people that you never thought possible. You'll love Him when you don't understand Him. You'll love other people when they don't deserve it. You'll find yourselves praying for the lost more than any other time before. That's what this transformation is about. And you know, with that, with that transformation, you know what comes about is a real hope. I run into a lot of Christians, ministered to a lot of Christians, 
who are getting ready to take their last breath. And some of them, even though being in church all their life, are still afraid of what is to come. Not afraid of the process. I see, understand that. That's one type of fear. But afraid of what's next after this process of, of death to the human body ends. What's next? And a Christian should not be afraid of what follows. Whenever you love God, back to the point that He has loved you, will never match His. But that's our ideal. That's what we shoot for. When we love Him back in the way that He loves us, and love, love His other children, love those who are lost like He loved them, that's a transformation. That's a real hope. That's not a wishful thinking that maybe I'll make it in through the pearly gates. Maybe Peter will let me in. All those other crazy things. This is a hope that's a confident expectation. You're not worried about the final breath. Like Abraham, who breathed his last, entered into the presence of the Almighty. That's what we want. And perfect love cast out fear of any punishment after death. That's where we that's how we should grow up and that's how it's measured. Now the specific time of the judgment <clears throat> this judgment in this context is the second advent when the wicked are taken out from among the righteous. It's been taught in the context what we call the intermediate context found earlier in the book of Matthew chapter 13 and verse 47. And again the kingdom of heavens like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish up of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, they sat down, they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw it threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. Now when you see those, those phrases and those words, you start thinking, End of what age? End of the age of Israel. When does the age of Israel end? After Daniel's 70th week is completed. That completes the age of Israel. When are we talking about? That's what the Lord's been talking about in the Olivet Discourse. See, it's, he's expanding what he said in Matthew 13, 47. It says the angels will come forth. They will take out the wicked from among the righteous. Throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's what happens. That's the separation of the goats. That's this illustration we get in Matthew chapter 25. Now, the place they are sent will include a furnace of fire located at the outer darkness. And there, there where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, in Matthew 13, verse 37 and following... He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Now see, this is a pretty good discourse. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness. That's what he says a little later in the same chapter, in the same paragraph, actually. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire. 
Then the righteous will shine, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's where they will be sent. That's where the goats are going to go. Now this has previously been identified as Hades, which we also know as torments. This is described in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. We've been through it several times, so we're not going to go back through the whole uh, paragraph that is listed there from those verses from 19 to 31. But what we find is that those who do not believe in the Messiah end up in Hades or hell. That's what we find in the passage. They end up in Hades or hell, and this is the the verses. Hades is also known as hell. Now, Hades contains conscious beings who would like to prevail against the kingdom of heaven. So who are the residents there? We know this as torments from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. They have to be in a conscious torment, and they have to want to overpower something in order to want to overpower something. So he's saying that I'm going to build this rock. The rock, of course, is Jesus Christ, but he's going to build his church. And he says, and the gates of, of hell won't overpower it. So we've been studying in the first session about Marxism. We've been studying about uh, uh, what is going on and the attack really on the whole world. How it seems to be a coordinated effort to try and impose Marxism on a, on a number of nations all over the planet at this particular point in time. And if you look at it from purely human lens it's real easy to get discouraged. But if you look at it from a spiritual lens, we serve the God that's already won this battle. We serve the God that says he's going to come back. We serve the God that says he's going to pull us out of here one of these days, and he's going to defeat all of his enemies. That's the God we serve. So the question is faith, not fear. I've seen ball caps and Signs in yards and all that. I don't know who put them out or what they're trying to say. Faith, though, not fear. Faith in the Almighty, not fear of what's going on on this planet. We need a vertical relationship going on with this, with the Almighty. And this horizontal thing has to be interpreted accordingly. So why should we be afraid? I think of David in Psalm 56 talking about um, what can man do to me? That's a refrain in Psalm 56. Beautiful question. What can man do to me? Uh, he can kill you, David. So what? So what? Would we rather die on our feet, standing up for the Lord? Or would we rather die crawling along, submitting to evil? How would we rather go out? That's the interesting thing that what they found, Voice of the Martyrs has found out about those in persecuted countries. They've already talked about this within their families. They've already made decisions for when somebody comes knocking on their door. The bad guys come knocking on their door and they ask them the question, are you a Christian? What are you going to say? How are you going to answer? 
Are you going to be willing to convert to Islam? Because that's the ones doing the big deal right now. Are you going to be willing to convert to whatever the, the prevailing thought is at that point in time? Or are you, have you already made your decision, I'm not going to deny the Lord? Have you already made it? They said the ones that make the decision already, these are the ones that endure the persecution. It's interesting, too, that even prisoners of war in Vietnam found out that the ones that were willing to share the meager rations that they had were the ones that survived. The ones that were selfish didn't make it. Interesting things. Hell is a place of conscious torment. Luke 16, 23, parable of the uh, uh, rich man and Lazarus. Hell will be emptied and thrown into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. So hell is a place of conscious torment. Where are the goats going? Into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Are they the first ones in? We, we don't know. They probably put into, into torments with the rest of the unbelievers until that time of the great white throne, which is the final appeal. They'll probably be put in there in the great white throne until the great white throne judgment. Then they'll be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 11 is what says this. Now this is, again, how do you put together systematic theology? You take the pieces. You have to analyze all of it. And I have I've loved going back through this again. I've taught this multiple times. Probably spent as much or more time this time studying it as I go through. Is there anything I missed? What have I missed? And why? And so, going back through this, you have to take the givens, what is given, what is stated, what is clear, and those have to interpret the things that are not as clear. And some things that are not as clear, you leave alone. You just have to leave alone. And that's that's the way you have to do it. It says, And I saw a great white throne in Revelation 20:11, and, and him who sat upon it, from whom whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Just think about that for a second. Wrap, try to wrap your head around that. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away? In what sense did it flee? Was this the destruction of the present heavens and earth? What, what is it? Or is it close to it? He's the one who's going to do that. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now, there's a preview of that in the separation of the sheep and the goats. Okay? You want to be judged by your works? I'll judge you by your works, and you'll still be found wanting. But see, the righteous are the ones that got in the kingdom, weren't they? And the righteous didn't even know what they did. When questioned earlier in the parable, they didn't even know what they did. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. That Hades, hell, Torments, that's the place that is in the rich man and Lazarus described quite well. 
And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, to their works. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now that is not a picture of the doctrine of election. Because when you look at the books, the Lord wrote down before history, we've studied it multiple times, the names of everyone it would believe. And he also wrote down another book called, it's the big book of life. This one is the Lamb's book of life. But see, when he opens this up, this is the, the book of life. But in Revelation 3, your name could be erased from that big book of life for unbelief. So if you have one set of books over here that wrote down the names of everyone who would believe, and then you had another set of books over here that wrote down the names of every, every human who would live, whose name was erased if they died in unbelief, it's accounting. What do you have at the end? The books were open. They're the same. It's the auditor has matched the books. And they're in agreement with each other. These are the believers. These are the ones who will go into the eternal state. So, <clears throat> thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. The word death is, is used multiple times in multiple ways. Jesus said, you're going to, if you believe in me, you'll live even if you die. Okay? Oh, and if you believe in me, you'll never die. Yeah, figure that one out. <laughs> you're going to die physically. It's appointed unto man wants to die. And after that, the, after that, the judgment. So we're going to die physically, but if we're spiritually alive, that part's never going to die forevermore. Now that is so, so amazing. But even if you die physically, you're going you're gonna to live. See, what the, the Lord has power over life and death. That's who he is. Now, what's the word eternal used with? Because if we, as we look at the word eternal, we have to ask, because this is talking about eternal punishment, shall go into eternal punishment, and shall go into, the other one shall go into eternal life. Both use the word ionion for eternal one uses Colossus, one uses Zoe. Now, <clears throat> the word is eternal means in the Greek, without a beginning or an end. That's what it means. I've been back through every, every dictionary that I've got, Greek dictionary. That's the way it was understood. Ionion was understood by the Greeks, where the Greek language came from. That's how they understood it, without beginning or end. Now, in the Hebrew, the word olam that is translated eternity or ever, eternal or everlasting is used 438 times. It means a very long time and has the sense of toward a vanishing point. Got a little different concept to it. But there's the Greek didn't have any word that would, would uh, adequately translate the word olam. So it used the word uh, Ionion in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. <clears throat> it means that it can end in the Hebrew, but does not necessarily have a definite end. It means it toward a vanishing point. 
it can keep going after it vanishes out of sight. It's kind of like if you're watching a train go down the track. And you watch this train, and guess what happens? It's moving toward a vanishing point. Did it keep going after it vanished? You don't know. Did it have an end point? You don't know. Olam has a different meaning to it. It could have a vanishing point with it. Now, <clears throat> the concept of eternity has been implanted in the heart of humanity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made everything appropriate at its time. He's also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He set eternity in the hearts of men. So I don't believe anybody's born an atheist just because of this passage. I believe that every person is born knowing there is something beyond this life. Every world religion except atheism agrees with that. They believe there's something beyond this life. There is a reincarnation. There is something beyond this life. And I believe that's an extension of the fact that God set eternity in the hearts of men. I've never met anybody born an atheist that didn't believe that there wasn't something beyond this life. What I have met is people who have come to believe that by being educated in the lie of Satan. Boy, what a deal that is if you can, if you can uh, say that there's, there's nothing to face. There's no judgment. There's no God you're going to have to stand in front of one of these days. Now, when we look at the word eternal, used 73 times, we're not going to track down all the words of olam in this, in this particular study. <clears throat> but the word olam, again, toward a vanishing point, but it does not describe in the Old Testament the things we find described in the New Testament in the same way and as clearly. The Greek made a lot of things very clear what the meaning was. Now, some eternal descriptions of God. When we see the word eternal, see, when you see eternal, and one says punishment, and the other one says life, you can't say one eternal means one thing, and the other eternal means something else. Okay? That's, that's improper uh, exegesis. Now, <clears throat> an eternal description of God, first of all, is person. Wonderful, amazing passages Romans 16:26 Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and in the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mysterion which has been kept secret for long ages past the chronos of the ionion oh very interesting the chronology of the eternity that's what he just just said but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. No beginning, no end. Has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory eternally forever. Amen. That's, that's a benediction that Paul gives on the book of Romans. That's the final amen. We find the word eternal referring to the mystery <clears throat> that was revealed in Jesus. Now see, God has no beginning or no end. We can't even fathom that. 
But if you're going to have an effect, you have to have an ultimate cause, and the ultimate, ultimate cause can't have a beginning. Otherwise, there would be a cause. He is the uncaused caused. That, who's, that is who God is. Now, he had, in somewhere back before, back before angels, back before the universe, back before man, it was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they had each other. They had each other. They issued what we call the divine decrees. That's where they decided to make uh, beings, creatures, who could love them back, and they decided a plan on how to do that. That is extracted. It's extrapolated. It is not a wild guess. It comes from a lot of studies saying, this is what happened. It's what had to happen. Look at what the effects are and reason back to the cause. It's the mystery revealed in Jesus. We just read it. Romans 16, 25, about the mystery, the eternal mystery, hidden in God. He had a plan from the beginning. Before we measured time, from long ages past, the chronology of the eternity. Chronology of the eternity. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Epaphra. We know this. This is one of the prophecies of the birth of Jesus Christ. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me. Those are that's one is capitalized. The me's capitalized to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of Olam, from the days of eternity. So Christ was known in eternity past. The plan was already made. It was designed. It was developed. Now, he existed before human history. Say, so how's the word eternity eternity used? We talk about it, but what does the Bible have to say about it? Titus 1-2. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. This is, this. the Greek is so cool. It says pra, P-R-O, which means before. Chronos, which is a word for time referring to chronology of time, sequence of events. And Ionion, eternity. That's what they just brought, they translated long ages ago. It's before the chronology of eternity. How long ago was it? Try to figure out. <laughs> Eternity passed. That's the only words we've got that can describe it. Sometime in eternity past. God designed this plan that somehow includes us. Somehow. And the Almighty, the Lord God, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, existed before human history. Colossians 1 is another passage that goes with that that doesn't use the word eternity but talks about that Jesus was there and everything that came into existence he brought into existence. He didn't have his human body yet but he was the son. He was the second person of the Godhead. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he made all those things visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities. All things that have been brought into being by him. He sets the physical nat and natural the physical natural boundaries. This is Jeremiah 5:22. He says, "Do you not fear me, 
declares the Lord. Jeremiah, time of the exile. Proverbs already been written. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So he asked the Jews in exile, Do you not fear me? declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea. An eternal decree, so it cannot pass over. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. And though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. He set and established the oceans and the boundaries. That's what he did. That's who he is. That's how he has done it. And he says, an eternal decree. But see, that eternal has an ending, doesn't it? It's a vanishing point. Something to consider. We've got to be honest with this. It hits a vanishing point. Something to When does it hit the vanishing point? When this present heavens and earth are destroyed. And a new one is made. And the new heavens and earth don't have any ocean. There is no sea. I wonder if that will be flat. Just a thought. Not going here. He sets the physical, natural boundaries. He made the invisible thing, 2 Corinthians 4.18, which says, While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. Looking at invisible, at invisible things. He lives into the... This is where it gets fun. Ephesians 4.20 Philippians 4.20 He lives into the ages of the ages. Now how long is eternity? (laughs) There's no start, there's no end of eternity. Okay, but he lives into the ages of the ages. Into the, literally, Ionion of the Ionion. (laughs) The eternities of the eternities. He's trying to tell us there's no way to measure it. We can't measure it. It's not not within our scope, our power. Who sets the standards? You find passages in Revelation that are just in there for no reason whatsoever. They have no... They're not even part of the ongoing narrative. And then they get thrown in there like he goes out to make take some measurements and then in parenthesis it says angelic measurements are also human measurements. What? <laughs> Why did he put that in there? Who's the one? He's teaching us. Who's the one that sets the standards? Who's the one that sets the standards? It is the Almighty that sets them. He has a purpose for humanity. Ah, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or or me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering. For the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. Why did he call us? For his purpose and grace, which was granted us believers in Christ Jesus, as Kelvin mentioned today, we're in Christ Jesus, how long from all eternity? He knew who was going to believe. He knew. This amazing grace, this plan that has been laid out is not something God is putting together on the fly. 
It's not something that he is experiencing now and go, oh, I better change this a little bit. No, he's already set it in motion. He already knows how the outcome is going to be. How about this? He's got a purpose for you and me. That's the point of that verse. And he's had this purpose for you and me from eternity. Then we find he expressed his glory in Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who brought death and brought who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Right light and eternity to light through the gospel. First Peter chapter five, verse ten. After you've suffered for a little while. I like that verse. Because sometimes our suffering seems to go on forevermore, just like Job's did. But he says, after you've suffered for a little while. I like what Paul said also in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said, momentary light affliction. Chapter 6, he lists some of the momentary light affliction that he's underwent and he's not done yet. That was, that was Corinthians. He still had another 10, 12 years to go. So he, he had gone through, oh, a shipwreck, beaten several times, uh, hit with lashes. I mean... He'd been through a lot, and he calls it momentary light affliction. Peter picks up on that. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Now, who has all the glory? It's not us. It's Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's called us into eternal glory in Christ. The fact that you're a believer in Christ entered into union positionally with him, you got all the glory you need. What does the world offer you? What is Satan? Fame, fortune, power, and pleasure. Fame is glory. That's what he offers. That's one of the major temptations of man. And see, if we're a believer that's got our head screwed on straight, shouldn't bother us at all. Should just bounce off. Christ has all the glory. We've got all the glory we ever need for all of eternity. Why do we want a little bit from man? Didn't he get on the Pharisees about that? Matthew. He says you do these things in order to be uh, liked by men. Truly you receive your reward in full. Now he expressed his glory in Christ Jesus. He gave Jesus the power over life and death. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 I saw him. He says, Revelation 1.17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now this is John. I think John was a pretty outspoken, bold, rambunctious individual. He and his brother James, you put those two together and they were a mess. That's why they were called the sons of thunder. And that's why when John on the Isle of Patmos in 96 A.D., and when John gets this vision, and he, and he says, and I saw him, okay? I fell at his feet like a dead man. John passed out when he saw the Lord. Now, John was one of those great apostles, really. He's one we know quite a bit about. He's one that, that uh, went through life and endured all kinds of things. People tried to kill him, boil him in oil and all this. None of it worked. 
So he ends up on this island, and he is scared to death when he sees the Lord in all of his glory. And he put his hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Look at that. Do not be afraid. Why? I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive eternally. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, that's quite a statement. Powerful statement to introduce the book of Revelation. He's already got through all the introduction and now the Lord takes center stage. And John gets a vision. And it absolutely blows John away. Now, this is one of the, the eternal descriptions of God. Eternity used to describe him. How about some words of eternal promise? I like this one. The Gospel, Revelation 14, 6. Oh, this is classic. This is, people say, well, what are, are there any believers in the tribulation? Yes. Okay, there is. Some people wonder if there's any uh, unbelievers that uh, end up in the millennium. Not, they don't start that way, but children are born to them, and some of them don't believe. So there's some unbelievers in the millennial kingdom join in the rebellion at the end of the thousand years. That's what happens. But here's the gospel, Revelation 14:6. What happens at the rapture? The restrainer's gone from the earth. Now you think what happens when the Christians are pulled from the earth right now. They're not that big of influence. But think what happens to Africa when the Christians are gone from Africa. Because they're only in a small area. Some in South Africa, some along the Gold Coast. And that's about it. And when they're pulled, that whole nation will be Islamic. Okay? When they're gone, what happens when the Christians are gone from China? We know there are Christians in China. We know there are underground churches in China. We know there are people that spread the gospel and pray for people. The, the, the belief is there's 20,000 a day turning to Christ. Isn't that amazing? I'm, I'm ready for to fill up the body and let's get out of here. But anyway, there, there's people there. What's going to happen after the rapture? There are no saved right after the rapture. But God's not going to leave his word without a witness. Revelation 14, 6 are three angels that come through in the tribulation. First one gives the gospel. The second one says, get out of Babylon. And the third one says, don't take the mark of the beast. So the first angel, they're all clustered here, topically like the Jews do it. First angel. And it says, and I saw another angel flying in midheaven having an eternal gospel. Now, when did God devise his plan? Sometime in eternity past. Okay? That's what we just read. It's an eternal gospel. Did he have a gospel already set up? It's an eternal gospel. To preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. That healthy fear pops up again. And give him glory. Because... The hour of his judgment has come. It's time. He's going to pour out his wrath on all the nations. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth 
and the sea and the springs of waters. Now that's the command the angel gives. So here's this eternal gospel that he gives to the entire earth at one time. Does anybody get saved? Yes. The 144,000, some of them. There's also in Revelation 11, two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. They come back and they're out south of Jerusalem, out in the desert out there, and they're doing what? Giving the gospel. What are the people, what is the, what's the false prophet trying to do? Kill them. What happens? They can't. What do they do? Shut up the skies. But what they're giving the gospel. People get saved during the tribulation. And here, why? The eternal gospel is part of it. It's interesting whenever, whenever an angel hits the whole world, those people, nobody can say, well, I didn't hear it. Nobody can claim ignorance. The gospel, how about salvation? Word eternal is used with salvation, Hebrews 5, 9. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him. Who, who, the him, this is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what chapters 5 through 9 are all about. And he says, became the source of eternal salvation now if you're given eternal salvation because you have faith in Christ can you lose it not if it's eternal being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek words of eternal promise you see what we have in the middle of a world that's falling apart what we have in the middle of the world that's calling evil good and good evil. What we have in the middle of a world that's trying to remove all religion, especially Christianity from the face of the earth. What we have in the middle of this world is an amazing hope. An amazing hope. In fact, Ron was telling me at Oklahoma State, uh, not this weekend, but they weren't there this weekend, last weekend, wasn't it? And they're playing a football game which they tend to do up there. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. They were playing a football game and the marching band turned around and played Amazing Grace at a college football game. That takes courage. Those are the kind of things that Christians need to stand up and do. Be willing to bear the consequences for them. But we need to take a stand and stand firm. Know what we believe. Know why we believe it. Be willing to stand for it. So very important. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your goodness and mercy and grace. Thank you for your blessings and for your test. Father, we thank you for your, your message. We know that, you, that your son is coming back. And, Father, we anxiously await his return. But we know there's more people to be saved and become part of the bride. So, Father, we pray that that will hasten on. And we pray as a result, His return will hasten on. Father, we know that it is going to, to incredibly shock the world. And, Father, that's what it should do. We pray that it will shock a lot of them to believe and become part of this amazing family that you've just told us you designed from eternity past. 
What a blessed plan that you have to save sinners by grace through faith and the one that conquered sin and death. We will always give you the praise. Let us do it now as we leave here. In Jesus' name, amen.